Let's pray. Oh, Father, how kind you have been to us to give us this book, the depths of which we have yet to plumb. Yet the truth therein is so full of mercy and so full of help in our time of need and so full of everything that we need for life and godliness, we dare not snorkel around on the surface. I pray, Father, that you would help us this morning to go deep and to discover afresh the hidden treasures of your word deep within that you have laid at the bottom in plain sight for anyone to find who will be faithful to search. I pray, Father, that as a result of our time together, that the Lord Jesus will be magnified yet more and more in us and that we would come away with a commitment to be more holy before him as his chosen people. Lord, we want to declare your excellencies this morning, so I pray and ask for your help. And Lord, I know that each person here comes with whatever events happened this week that may be affecting them. Oh, Father, I pray that we'd lay all of that aside now, that your Spirit would have his way with your people. Bless us now, Father, by your grace and for your glory, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. The New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 8. And read with me, beginning with verse 7. Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant, which... If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. If you are at all in tune with what's happening in Western Christianity in general and American Christianity in particular, then you know that we are in serious trouble. Not that there are fewer churches. To the contrary, there are many, many, many churches. There was a couple that visited here last week from Scotland, and on their way out they said, wow, there are churches on every corner down here. Not so in Scotland or in many other parts of the world. It's not that the Lord is being unfaithful to build his church. No, not even death itself can inhibit the Lord from building his church. Nevertheless, we are experiencing what might be termed a, a, a kind of spiritual hollowing out of Christianity. A doctrinal hollowing out of Christianity. On the outside, we put forth the appearance of the real thing. But on the inside, the substance of our faith is slowly being eaten away. We don't even know what it is anymore. One day, I was sitting in our living room in our house with one of my children, reading a book or doing something, I don't recall. But I do remember being struck in the head 
And when I turned to see who did it, there was no one there. And I looked up, and a, and a ceiling tile had fallen off the ceiling and struck me in the head. And I started poking around and examining it, and upon further inspection, it came to light that termites had eaten away the paper of the sheetrock in the ceiling that the, the tiles were glued to. And all I had to do was reach up and give each one a little poke, and they fell. Each one fell, fell, fell. And then we saw that there were veins down in the walls, and we didn't realize that our ceiling and our walls were being hollowed out by these invisible creatures that were destroying the structure of our house. And so we called a pest control company, and they dealt with it forthrightly. Many of us in the church today realize that this is exactly what's happening in Western Christianity. What's happening behind the tiles, so to speak, is invisible to us, but Christianity is being eaten out. The forms are still there, the steeples, the hymnals, the praise teams, the pulpits, they're all still there. But the substance of the church is being hollowed out. And let me give you some examples of what I mean by that. There are crucial, crucial matters that we're not even connected to anymore. We don't even remember them. For example, many of us would call ourselves evangelical. Do we know what the word evangelical means? Where does evangelical come from? Well, you might be surprised to know that it comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means gospel. We are distinguishing ourselves as evangelicals because we believe the gospel of the New Testament. It used to be that if you identified yourself as an evangelical, it meant that you believed certain truths about the gospel and you rejected certain other propositions that other people were making about the gospel. Not so today. Today, if you call yourself an evangelical, you could mean anything. You could mean virtually anything. You might even be Catholic. It doesn't matter. You could be any, anywhere in the spectrum of Christianity. You could even be Orthodox. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the euangelion has no meaning for us anymore. Another example. It used to be that if you were evangelical, you were also Protestant. But do you know what Protestant means? Do you call yourself a Protestant? Then let me ask you, what, pray tell, are you protesting? If you were to ask that to your average Christian, they'd probably laugh. That sounds silly, Protestant, protesting. Never thought about it. Exactly my point. What are we protesting? We're protesting this. We're protesting the Roman Catholic false understanding, unbiblical understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another example is the word reformed. And Charlie this week explained to a brother in leadership at another church that we were having conversation with this week that our understanding of the gospel is the reformed view. And he said, what does that mean? Well, Reformation, you remember the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Eric Zwingli, uh, any of that ring a bell? Do we not remember the Reformation? Do we not remember the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men and women and even children who died for the sake of saving this book for us and rescuing the gospel for us. These are the stones upon which the church is built. And yet we don't remember. All of the forms are there, but the substance has been hollowed out. And more and more, as new models of church ministry come to the fore, they're rejecting the old substance and yet reaching back to bring to life the old forms so that it looks like historic Christianity when it is not. Another term that we have come to lose 
we've all but lost, really, in Western Christianity is the term covenant. And this isn't just a Christian term. This is a Bible term. This is a term that is all over the Bible. Somebody asked me recently, when you highlight in your Bible, what system do you use? And I said, I really don't have a system except this. Every time I see the word covenant, when it refers to God and his people, I highlight it in pink. And so you can flip all through the Bible, in my Bible, and see the term covenant highlighted in pink. Why? Because I want it to jump out at me every time. Now, you know, if you've been coming to Calvary Bible Church for any length of time, that we don't hold to a covenant theology. That's a separate kind of entity. We, don't, we, don't, we do not follow covenant theology. We are not covenant theologians. But the term covenant in the Bible is absolutely crucial. And yet we don't understand it. So that when we come to a passage like this, which I just read in Hebrews chapter 8, and we said, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant, etc., etc., etc. We look at that and say, I don't know what that means. Let's just keep reading. We don't have a clue. We don't have a clue. Why? Because we've lost it. We don't have any connection to the history of Christianity anymore. We have become an entity all our own that we have invented. And along with our own invention of our own theology comes the invention of our own God as well. The concept of the covenant in the Bible is extremely important. It's not a part of our modern hip lingo, so when we read passages like the one that's set before us this morning, it rings hollow in our souls because the substance is missing. And it has no meaning and carries no weight because we've lost so much of the substance of our faith. And so this morning I want to kind of catch us up very briefly on what it means, what the Bible means when it talks about covenant. What is a covenant? Well, if you're taking notes, here's something you may want to record. The concept of covenant in the Bible refers to when two parties yoke themselves together by solemn agreement. When two parties yoke themselves together by solemn agreement. It may be a covenant between two people, say, as in marriage, or it may be between the heads of two nations, like Israel and Assyria, or Israel and Babylon, or Israel and Tyre, or something like that. It may be like, in modern, modern terms, we have a treaty with other nations, that we will be at peace with them, we will trade with them, we will defend one another. The word covenant means fetter. Another word that we've lost. You know what a fetter is? It's uh, that song we sing. Um, uh, what's that? Uh, but, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And he uses the word fetter there, but I didn't just say it. <clears throat> but the idea is take my heart, Lord, and chain it to yours. Bind me by covenant, my life to your life, so that I don't go anywhere without you, and I don't do anything without your approval. It means fetter. As one, when one person is chained to another, it can also mean yoke. To be yoked together, as when Paul says that warns us to be careful not to become yoked together with unbelievers, not to enter covenant with unbelievers. Why? Because to take a solemn oath and bind ourselves to unbelievers, what fellowship is darkness with light? You remember that argument from Paul? It also means to cut. Because usually a covenant is ratified by the sacrifice of an animal in the Bible. Whenever there's a covenant, or even the reaffirmation of a covenant, an animal, or in some cases many animals, lose their life. 
Because if you enter into a covenant with someone, it means you are blood earnest about keeping whatever the terms of the covenant are. I am blood earnest in my commitment to you. And that's exactly what we see throughout the Bible. The word in the New Testament for covenant is diatheke. It refers to a contract, a covenant, or, listen, a testament. Now, a testament isn't those little candies you buy at the local Christian bookstore. A testament is this. When a person dies, a lawyer will meet with a family and disclose the deceased's last will and what? Testament. What is a testament? Well, it's the testimony. It's a written revelation of the will of the person who died. Or we, in this case, and we'll see this in chapter 9 of Hebrews, we might think of it as a legal document providing for the disposition of a person's property after death. In other words, it's a legal declaration that explains to the covenant heirs of the deceased what each relative's portion of the inheritance will be. You have entered covenant... Along with the covenant, in that contract, that fettering of yourself together, it involved not only you, but your descendants after you, so that when you die, what belonged to you now belongs to them, and the document tells us how. It's all about the inheritance. Where there's a will, there's a relative, I always say. (laughs) I couldn't pass that up. Think about this the next time you hear someone invite you to turn in your Bible to the New Testament. The New Testament. The New Testament is the document our Heavenly Father provided to explain to all of His adopted sons and daughters what they stand to inherit because of the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's written declaration of the terms of the covenant and the outcry, the, the, the outflow of all of his inheritance. That's why in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every, every perfect and heavenly gift in Christ Jesus. It has to do with our inheritance. The Lord Jesus Christ was the sole heir to God's kingdom. But one day on a cruel Roman cross, the son died so that we might live. And now all that belonged to the son has been given to us, his adoptive brothers and sisters in the covenant, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so as we continue moving forward this morning in our study of the book of Hebrews, we come to this section that is all about the new covenant. But I hesitate to jump into this section too quickly because I fear that most of us don't understand the significance of covenants in the Bible. And without such an understanding, this passage is going to mean very little to us. It will be something on the surface, but nothing with any substance. And so what I'd like to do over the next few minutes is kind of lead you through a a jet tour of the history of the major covenants of the Bible. And to do this, we need to turn all the way back to Genesis, beginnings, right? This is where everything significant in the Bible begins. Even the gospel begins here. And I want you to turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, because here is the first major covenant. Now, I realize our time is short. And there are a number of covenants in the Bible that we could look at. In fact, I had to cross some of them out this week so we could have a reasonable sermon and, and not a, you know, an all-day affair. So I'm only going to look at three, and I think these are the three most important ones. But this first one, if you're taking notes, we might call it the Noahic Covenant, named after Noah. Because this is the first big covenant as stated in the Bible. Now, covenant theologians will assume other covenants previous to this. But this one is the first one that's stated in the Bible to be a covenant. The Noahic covenant. 
Now, there are some key elements that I just want us to see in each one of these covenants because I think it'll be uh, really, uh, literally a revelation to you. I mean, that's what the book is for, right? To reveal God. And so I'm going to go through and I'm going to show you the commonalities between the covenant. And when you've got that down, you'll look at the new covenant and say, wow, now I understand something about the new covenant. And so there are some common elements or characteristics of the biblical covenants, and we'll see the first here in Genesis chapter 9. The first thing I want you to notice is the persons of the covenant. When we talk about two persons or two groups in some cases that are united or yoked together, chained together by covenant, when it comes to the Noahic covenant, who is being united? Well, You already know the answer to this. This is Noah after the flood. The ark has come to rest on Ararat. They waited until the waters went down. God said, it's time to come out of the ark now. It's safe. Things are beginning to grow. The birds have already left. And so Noah comes out, and he sets up an altar, and he makes a sacrifice, and the Lord declares a covenant. And so who is the covenant with? Well, we don't have time to look at all the whole passage, but let me tell you who it's with. The covenant chains together or fetters together God on the one hand and all humanity and all animal life forever. Okay? All persons. And we see this specifically in short in verses 9 and 10. Noah Behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you. Of all that comes out of the ark, every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you and with all flesh. Those are the persons of the covenant. Secondly, we see the sacrifice of the covenant. And for this, we have to jump backwards a little bit. Same context, previous chapter, eight, chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. The very first thing, as I said, that Noah did when he got out of the ark. Now, verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird. Notice that there are a lot of animals that are going to die here. And offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now there's more to it than that, but what I want you to see here is that the covenant not only had covenant persons, it had a covenant sacrifice. There was a sacrifice that was made. The third thing that I want you to see is the terms of the covenant, and I just read a portion of those terms. There are more of them, but look at verse 11. Verse 11, God says of chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the, what? Water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So what is the covenant? This is a covenant between God and all people and all animals forever that he will never pour out his wrath upon them by means of a flood of water. He's trying to give Noah confidence. Don't be afraid. When you see it rain, don't get scared. I am never, ever, ever going to destroy humanity by water again. And so when you see the rain come, trust me, I am the covenant-keeping God. I never fail to keep my promise. And it's going to rain a lot. And I don't want you to ever be afraid of the rain. Fourth, there is a sign of the covenant. We see the persons of the covenant. We see the sacrifice of the covenant. We see the terms of the covenant. And fourth, we see the sign of the covenant. Look at verses 12 through 17 of chapter 9. Verse 12, God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud. 
And this shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And then he repeats some of that through the remaining verses, but you get the point. The sign of the covenant. Every time we see a rainbow, every time your children walk outside and say, Mama, look up in the sky. That is beautiful. You shouldn't say, yes, well, what that is, is sunlight hitting the molecules of water and making kind of a prism, and it makes those colors, and let's see if we can count the colors, all of that is fine. But if you only do that and never say, yes, children, that is the sign of God's covenant with us. We never have to be afraid of the rain. God will never destroy the earth by flood again. That covenant is still for us and for our children, and he has never turned his back on it. By this, Noah and his children and all generations after them had confidence that though we are sinful men, and though we serve a holy, holy, holy God, yet he will be merciful. And he will not give us what we deserve in terms of wiping out the earth by water ever again. Now, don't misunderstand that. He's not saying he will never judge the earth again. In Second Peter, he says there will be a day. But his judgment will not be with water next time by fire. The second covenant we want to see in the Bible this morning is found in Genesis 15. We've looked at the Noahic covenant. Now I want us to look at the Abrahamic covenant. And by its name, you probably already know that this is God's covenant with Abraham. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. And Robert, would you mind bringing me up that far left water there? Nope, that's Charlie's. I'll take the other one. <laughs> Genesis chapter 15. Thanks very much. This is God's covenant with Abraham. Now, you remember that the Lord had promised Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that he would make Abraham into a great nation, and through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. The problem was Abraham, by chapter 15, was getting really, really old. And his wife was even older. They were so far, they were so old, they were far beyond the, ages, the age of childbearing. It was literally inconceivable that she could conceive. And that's the way God had ordained it. So that no one could look at what God had done and say, Oh, well, you say it's God, but I mean... Babies happen. Not this baby. Not when the wife is a hundred years old. When was the last time you went to a nursing home? Okay? I mean, we're talking inconceivable here. And yet she conceived. Problem is, in Genesis 15, it hadn't happened yet. And you remember, well, look there in chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham, Abraham responds by saying this. Let me give you the Dan Kirk translation. Yeah, God, you've said that before, but how is my reward going to be great when you haven't given me a son yet? Where's the son? Where's the promised son? No disrespect, Lord. But you promised this years ago. It's a legitimate question. This is the way Abraham said it, verse 2. Abraham said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? I am still childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Not my son, but the son of one of my relatives is going to be my heir. That's the way the covenant is set up right now. My heir is going to be someone who is not my own. And so in Genesis 15, 
the Lord comes and makes a covenant with Abraham. In response to this question, the Lord makes his covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And first we see the persons of the covenant, and I'm just going to try to keep these uniform so we can get a feel for how covenants work. The persons of the covenant in this case, namely God on the one hand, binding himself to Abraham and his descendants on the other. Now, who are his descendants? Abraham's descendants would be the Jews, Israel. Right Now, we do know that there was Ishmael and the whole Arab nations and uh, God's blessing upon them. Yes, but God's promise was that he would have a son through whom the world would be blessed, namely through Isaac and then Jacob, who was renamed what? Israel. And Jacob had how many sons? Twelve. Twelve sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. And so the persons of this covenant, namely God on the one hand and Abraham and his descendants on the other. But notice second, the sacrifice of the covenant. We are in Genesis 15. Look at verses 8 through 11. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Referring to the land that God had promised. I forgot an element here. It's going to be a son, a people, and a land is the promise. How will I know that I will possess it? And so the Lord said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abraham drove them away. Let me set up the picture for you. Abraham takes these animals that the Lord said to gather and kill, and he cuts them in half. He cleaves them. This is why the term for covenant means to cut, to take an animal, to cut him in half and make a pathway, like, much like these two aisles are separated by, uh, or, or these, these two sections of pews are separated by an aisle. That's what Abraham did. He separated these pieces of animal together uh, apart so that... The two members of the covenant would join hands, as it were, and walk through the pieces of the covenant. Thereby, they were saying, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I should ever violate this covenant. That's the significance of the sacrifice. That's the significance of the sacrifice. And so the sacrifice of the covenant were these many animals. Third, there are the terms of the covenant. Look at verses 4 through 7. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then jump down to verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. What land is that? Egypt. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they will return here. Where was he? In present-day Israel. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not complete. And here's what happened. It came about when the sun had set that there was very, that there was, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. What is that? Fire and smoke 
When do you see that else in, in, in the Old Testament? Whenever God appeared in his glory, what was it? Fire and smoke. The Shekinah glory leading Israel through the wilderness. Fire and smoke. And that glory, that presence showed up in order to, as it were, you think, to take hands with Abraham, to walk through the pieces, to join together in covenant. But keep reading. The smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed through these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and then he names the people. And what was Abraham doing? He was asleep. The Lord had put him asleep. And this is what the Lord was saying. Abraham, this is not a covenant about what I'm going to do for you and what you're going to do for me. This is a covenant between us. And the covenant terms are these. I am going to bless you. I promise to bless you. And all of the blessing that you receive is not because of works, but because of my grace toward you and my mercy. So there is going to be a covenant. There is going to be a sacrifice. There are going to be terms, but they're all my terms. And it is all my responsibility. I will build this nation and you will be their father. And through you, all the earth will be blessed. I am the Lord. Those are the terms of the covenant. And this covenant, too, was not without a sign. Turn to chapter 17, verses 9 through 11. And when I look at verse seven, chapter 17, I see covenant highlighted all over this, but we don't have time to look at it all. Beginning with verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant which you shall keep. In other words, this is your part between me and you, your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be what? Circumcised. Circumcised. This is the sign of the covenant. Verse 11, and you shall be circumcised in your flesh and your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. All the terms of the covenant are mine, but you must bear the sign of it. You must bear the sign of the covenant. And so every Jewish male was to be circumcised. There are, there are other examples of covenant in Genesis, but we need to skip ahead for the sake of time because I want you to see the third and the one most relevant to the church that the author of Hebrews is writing to, and that is the Mosaic Covenant or the covenant that God engaged with through Moses. Now, at this point in history, God has been faithful to his promise to Abraham. We're talking about Exodus. You can start moving toward chapter 24. God had done everything that he had promised for Abraham through his son Isaac. Through his son Isaac came a great throng of people whom God called Israel. And just as God had revealed to Abraham, his descendants had been held captive for 400 years. And if you read the account of the Exodus, it says they left 400 years after they arrived to the day. 400 years God was faithful to his covenant. But God had a plan to rescue his people through a man named Moses, and that he did. The book of Exodus is the story of how God used Moses to rescue his people from Egypt. And through Moses, God had sent, to, uh, the, God had sent Egypt the ten plagues, and then he led Israel out across the Red Sea, and you remember all of that story. And finally, Moses brought his people, God's people, to God. To a mountain. In some places the mountain is called Horeb. You know it probably best as Mount Sinai. Also a term used in the Bible. This is the same mountain. 
where Moses one day was taking his sheep and he saw a light and wondered what it was. And so him and his, his sheep went up the mountain to check it out and they got there and found a bush that was burning but not consumed. And he met God. And God sent him on his mission. And now Moses is back to that same mountain, only now it's not just him and his sheep. It's him and two million people at the base of this mountain. Exodus 24, we find the elements of the Mosaic Covenant coming together once again. Now, who are the persons of the covenant? The persons of this covenant are God and Israel. God and the nation of Israel. And second, there is the sacrifice of the covenant. Look at Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. Exodus 24, verse 3, And Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, which he had gotten off the mountain, and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, The words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then he arose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrifices, young bulls and peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant... And read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And so there was a sacrifice. A sacrifice by which the people said to God, We understand the terms of the covenant. The terms of the covenant are these, that you will bless us if we will obey. You will bless us if we obey. On the other hand, you will curse us if we disobey. And they made a sacrifice. And by making the sacrifice, they were saying, may what happened to these animals happen to us. If should we ever violate this covenant. And the terms of the covenant are clearly stated in chapters 24 all the way through chapter 31. And obviously we don't have time to read all of that. They're also given explicitly throughout the Old Testament. They're restated again and again. Namely, that if the people obey God's word, if they worship him according to the pattern that's set forth by Moses, if they offer the sacrifices, if they keep their hearts clean before God, if they keep the Sabbath and perform all of his ordinances with a clean hands and a pure pure heart, they will be blessed of God. In Deuteronomy 11:26 and through 27, we see this said explicitly. The Lord says, See, I am setting before you today blessing and a curse. The blessing if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. I will bless Or I will curse. And really the choice is entirely yours. How will it go with you? And so we see the persons of the covenant. We see the sacrifice of the covenant. We see the terms of the covenant. Exodus 31, then we see the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant. By then all of the men of Israel were already being circumcised. But this was a new covenant. This was a different covenant. And so in Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17, we have the new sign for this covenant. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 12, chapter 31, Exodus. The Lord spoke saying, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you shall surely observe my what? Sabbath. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so what is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. The Sabbath was the centerpiece of the whole, what we now refer to, what what Hebrews refers to as the Old Covenant. 
the sign of the old covenant was the Sabbath. And then interestingly enough, there was a covenant meal. If you turn to Exodus 24, Exodus 24, verses 10 and 11. Verse 9 says, And Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu to the top of the mountain, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire. Remember that from a couple weeks ago? As clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against them, the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they did what? They ate and drank. This was the initiation of what would become the covenant meal. Later, there would be a different meal, and it would be the Passover. The Passover, by which when two parties come together to reaffirm the covenant, they share a meal together and say, remember that covenant that we had with one another? It's still in effect. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. We eat a meal together to reaffirm it. Now, as we consider these Old Testament covenants, Let's summarize what God has promised each. To Noah, God promised humanity the inheritance of a world never to be destroyed again by flood. To Abraham, God promised the inheritance of offspring and land for them to dwell and thrive in. This would become the promised land. The Mosaic Covenant, God promised an inheritance of blessing in the land if they obeyed his law, but great curses if they disobeyed. Now, if I ask you, if God's ultimate purpose was to bring many sons to glory, as he explains in the book of Hebrews, what's wrong with these three covenants? What's wrong with these three covenants? If the goal is to bring many sons to glory, what's wrong with these three covenants? Answer, none of them provide for eternal salvation. God never intended any of those covenants to bring people to glory, to bring sinners into the holy presence of God. If that was going to happen, there had to be a new covenant. There had to be a new covenant. If God is going to save sinful men and women from the great and terrible day of his wrath, there had to be something beyond these former covenants. There had to be a greater covenant. There had to be a new covenant. And that is exactly what God had in mind from the very beginning. And so turn back to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant... Now he's speaking of a specific one here, right? He's speaking of the one that the Jews were most attached to at this point. And which one was that? The Mosaic covenant. The priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple, all of the pageantry, the costumes. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. Now, did you notice that this is in quotations? Did you notice that it's printed differently? We've seen all along, have we not, that throughout this book, the author of Hebrews is making his point based on Scripture. He is arguing, he's, he's arguing his point based on Old Testament texts. And in this case, that's exactly what he's doing again. In fact, there are two significant texts. He's only using one of them here. This is from the prophet Jeremiah. And then there's another one by the prophet Ezekiel, where God in the Old Testament said, there must be a new covenant. The old covenants will save no one. There must be a new covenant. 
And it will be between God, listen, and his church. And it will be a covenant with covenant um, sacrifice. And it will be a covenant with covenant terms. And it will be a covenant with a covenant sign. And it will be a covenant with a covenant meal. And it will be a covenant to end all covenants. Because it will come through Christ. There is so much more to learn here. So much for us to see. But here's what I want you to take with you. I've still got at least three more pages of notes. You are a covenant people. You haven't just believed in Jesus. That is such a hollowing out of the Christian gospel. You didn't just walk an aisle and pray a sinner's prayer and believe in Jesus. You have entered into covenant with Christ. Christ has bound himself to you and you to one another in his church. So that when in Ephesians 5, he goes through the whole thing about husbands love your wives and wives, uh, husbands, uh, 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 what's, what is it? Love your wives, that's right. And wives, respect your husbands. As the church respects Christ, as Christ loves his church, so do in your marriage. Why? Because you are a picture in your marriage of that covenant relationship. That's why it's so astounding when you get to the end of that passage in Ephesians 5 that the author Paul says, This is a great mystery, but I am speaking of Christ and his church. What's he talking about? You are a covenant people. When you read passages like, you are not your own, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Brothers and sisters, that's covenant language. You don't belong to you anymore. You did that before Christ. You were a slave to your passions. Now you are free in this covenant that God has brought to bear on your life. What is that covenant all about? How does that covenant work? How was it put in place? What does it mean for you and this church? Well, if you want to find that out, you've got to come back next week. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how search, unsearchable are his judgments. But your truth is clearly revealed to those who will search for it as for great riches. We are such a rich people who live such impoverished lives because we don't desire the treasure of the gospel more than we desire the pleasures of sin. Oh, Father, forgive us. Change us. Make us holy. Make us the covenant people that Jesus died to make. For your great glory and for our eternal joy. For we pray by the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand.